Good morning, guys. Good seeing you today. Beautiful, beautiful Central Coast winter. <laughs> Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of First Peter? That's where we are at, First Peter, if you uh, have not been with us. Uh, this is a brand new series that we started going through about two weeks ago. This is kind of like our third week into this. Uh, if you need a moment or two to locate First Peter, uh, I always like to mention that there's no shame ever in looking at the table of contents. Um, if you guys need a Bible, we have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible to have one on hand. If you currently don't own a Bible or have one, uh, feel free to take this. It's our gift to you guys. Uh, are we getting a little bit of feedback or is it just me? Okay, we're working on it. Good. Sorry about that. We're working on that. Um, anyways, um, that being said, what I want to do is uh, as we begin to jump into this, uh, we last week looked at what I just described. Sorry, we cut out all together here. So we're still working on it. Sorry. This is the this is the beauty. And honestly, like I just I have to give props to our tech team, our sound team, our setup team. Every single week, this entire property goes from being nothing more than a tent and pavement to everything that you see here. Everything. Like wires and sound and Everything that's audible, everything that is seen, the stage, the every little detail uh, is set up by these guys. So, you know, just give a nice little round of applause to our entire team. Thank you, guys. Is there anything I could do to help minimize this? No? Okay, we're working on this. Sorry. Just one of those distractions. Does it sound okay? Okay, good. All right. If it's just a ringing in my head, then I'll just deal with it. <laughs> um, and the last thing I'll just say with regard to that is uh, if you would like to help out, it's one of the things that we're always looking for, are people that would help, uh, you know, many hands make the load lighter. Uh, if you'd like to help out, we're always looking for fresh new people that would love to just jump in and be a part of the team. Uh, we have great teams that are in place. We have great leadership that are there to help build up and strengthen the teams. One of the things we always say is that it's not just simply about setting up chairs or doing busy work or grunt work. It's an act of discipleship. I mean, if you really want to begin to walk is, as a follower or disciple of Jesus, we always just say this is, this is a part of that step in that growth in that direction of learning how to serve uh, other people uh, through a team and community and connectedness and all that. So, um, all right. First Peter is what I want to look at. Uh, last week, as I mentioned, we started doing kind of what is more of like an overview. Next week, we will actually begin to get into the, the, the body of the text itself. Um, and one of the things that we said last week with regard to sort of a 30,000 above sea level overview of this book is we asked the question, why? Why was this book written? And if you uh, want to access the information with regard to that, while well, we have sort of fun day today here, we got uh, pine cones falling down. Don't sit under the pine cone tree, you'll die. Um, and uh, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, Peter tells us the why, the why that he wrote this book. He says, I, I, I want you to stand firm. So if you are finding yourself in this life right now, in this moment, kind of on shaky ground, uh, you find yourself in a place where your world is is riddled with you know, movement and brokenness just like everybody else. And yet even beyond all that, there's a desire in your heart to stand firm. 
to stand firm, then this, this book is literally for you. It was written directly by way of the Holy Spirit through the hands and the mind and the heart of a guy like Peter uh, to, to speak to us 2,000 years post-dated so that we could stand firm. Um, and what I want to do today is, again, because this is sort of a two-part overview, we're going to continue our flyby. And what I want to look at more specifically today is the what. What are the major themes that the book of Peter are all about? And this is where it gets really fascinating. Again, we are not going to spend a lot of time looking at this in detail. This is more of like a flyby, high above the ground, looking at these themes and ideas. And as we begin next week to begin to jump into the text in the passage and the body of content itself will begin to focus on uh, the minutia, the details of the actual text and various elements and themes that the, as they pop up, as they crop up within the text, uh, we'll be able to just see what God has to uh, speak to us. Um, that being said, before we jump in, one last thing I want to encourage you to consider doing. Um, make it a daily practice or weekly practice, if you would, to read this book. Um, and to help you to do this well, um, I've actually created a resource guide. And the best way to access that resource guide is you should see a little QR code. Like right behind the tent right there is a big black A-frame. On that is a big QR code. There should be other QR codes. Or back in the little table that we have, that little welcome table back there, there should be these little uh, printouts. It has a QR code on there. Just take your phone out, scan it. It'll take you to our link tree. And on our link tree, there should be a little thing that says resource guide. Click that. It's got just a bunch of, I, I think, helpful information um, to help you be able to read this really incredible book. And then one of the things I mentioned last week is that the entire book, five chapters, it will literally take you 20 minutes to just read it in one setting. If that's too long, I get it. We're super busy. My encouragement would be to read one chapter every single day. That'll be less than five minutes of your time. And I mentioned this to you guys even last week. If you do not have five minutes a day, you got a problem. Like you got to rearrange your schedule and figure out what you got to do. I realize some of us have very, very packed and loaded schedules, but to figure out some time to be able to get scripture into our hearts, into our heads, into our minds, into our thoughts, into our lives. It's just part of the process of being a disciple of Jesus. So that's my encouragement to you. There's no guilt, no shame affixed to that, just for you to consider and think about. So as we begin to jump in, I want to basically take a look at three major themes that the book of 1 Peter are all about. Um, I'll just label them, and then we will kind of look at them bit by bit. So number one, big theme, is suffering. Suffering. A topic we love to talk about, suffering. We'll come back to that. Second one is holiness. This is kind of the second greatest topic. We love to spend time thinking about holiness. How can we be holy? I know that's how you all woke up this morning. It was like, Lord Jesus, help me be holy. How do I do that well, right? Um, thirdly, I say that tongue-in-cheek. Thirdly is salvation. What is salvation? And why is this so important? And how does this play into the larger theme of what Peter is describing? So with that, I want to jump in. We'll look at each one of these. Again, these are themes that are interwoven throughout the entire book. It's one of the reasons why this entire series is actually called Suffering and Glory. Suffering and Glory. Because that's the big idea. Suffering, we have to go through it. There's elements and hardships and challenges that you and I all face. Uh, but it's redemptive, which means on the other side of suffering is this great hope of 
glory that we have been given. So with that being said, I want to jump in and take a look at some of these themes. So the idea of suffering. Now I want to tell you a little quickly, a little bit quickly in terms of how I actually go about planning and prepping for a teaching series like this. Usually what ends up happening for me is usually months before I actually get into teaching this, I'll spend a lot of time and energy just reading the, 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 the book. Over and over and over again. I have apps. I just actually, I'm a horrible reader, so I'll listen to it. So I'll put the, uh, this particular passage or the entire book of First Peter on, and I'll just play it. I'll go for a walk. I'll just spend time. I'll listen to it on repeat over and over and over again. By the time I end up getting to a chance of actually studying and or teaching it, I would have read this dozens and dozens of times. The idea behind that is not to, to boast, of course. It's really just so that I become very familiar with the passage. I want to understand um, what the passage or what the writer is actually trying to say, even before understanding what others have to say about what he had to say. Uh, in the biblical world, we call that commentators, all right? Um, uh, commentaries are important uh, arsenal, part of the arsenal of pastors and Bible teachers. Uh, what a commentary is, is typically some well-educated human being that has spent a lot of time reading it, studying it, and then he gives his, his opinion on it. And it's really possible for pastors oftentimes to, to circumvent reading the text to go directly to commentators. And so at the end of the day, what I try to do in terms of understanding the Bible passage itself is to let the Holy Spirit speak to me and then begin to generate and I get a good idea in terms of what the themes are. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. But Secondly, as I begin to teach it, I want to, I do want to hear what others have to say about it because I do believe that wisdom comes through other people. And so I want to have a humble heart that listens to the voices of other people and what they have to say on this. One of the voices that I've been reading a lot lately and I really enjoy, he's an African American pastor slash theologian guy by the name of Dennis Edwards, who's actually written a tremendous commentary on this that um, I, I found really valuable. One of the things that he described with regard to the book of First Peter itself is that this is one of those books that for the most part, what he's discovered is that Westerners, people like you and I, living in the church, we don't read. We're not very familiar with the book of Peter. We're more familiar with the writings of Paul. We're more familiar with, you know, book of Revelation or some of the gospels. But the book like First Peter, we just don't really read very often. But what he's discovered as a pastor and as someone that works with people is especially amongst um, marginalized or alienated or exiled people, in particular people of color, like what he even describes within his own African-American community, he has discovered that the book of Peter has been long read, long studied, long just stopped and listened to. And he says there's a reason for that. He believes it's because the book of Peter is actually, as a major theme, is about suffering. To be able to understand how does one survive as a follower of Jesus, even in a world where it's riddled with suffering? How do we do that well? And so what he points out and describes is that the suffering church is one that's way more well acquainted with Peter than those that are more affluent. More than those that are just kind of going through life and looking for better ways to kind of polish or fine tune their lives so that things are, are that much more comfortable in their lives. But what I want to encourage you to think about as we read through the book of Peter, it's one of the reasons why I just sense so strongly the Lord just kind of directing us to um, imbibe and to rest and to think and to process this incredible bit of literature that's inspired by the Holy Spirit is because if anything, 2020 has shown us as human beings, we are way more vulnerable and weak than we ever even imagined. 
ourselves to be. Would you agree with that? We are way more prone to being broken and messed up and filled with anxiety and finding ourselves crumpling, right, on the ground in a moment of fear or worry than we've ever been. And that's what suffering does, is it reveals things. It shows forth things. Now, again, some communities, some people groups have lived that as sort of their experience, their reality. It's part of who they are. It's part of their experience. And so that's why they're way more aware of the fact that when suffering happens, the bigger question is not how do we get out of suffering, not how do we numb the effects of suffering, but how do we deal with suffering in a way that's honoring to God? And that's what Peter's trying to bring to our attention is this idea of suffering. Peter is basically written uh, by way of uh, focal point to speak to people that are living throughout. And again, we'll get into this more next week as we begin to actually get in the body of the text. Um, a community of Christians, people that are faithful to Jesus, living throughout the ancient Roman Empire. And these people have been experiencing varying degrees of pressure from the culture around them. So, for example, like alienation or public shaming, slander, and other forms of abuses. These are the types of things that they were facing. So imagine it this way. Here these people were. These were Christians living throughout the ancient Roman Empire, trying to be faithful to God. But they were living in a culture and a community that was deeply hostile to the claims of Jesus. And yet they're being pressured. And that pressure might come in the way of like forcing people to, you know, walk away from their faith or shaming them because they believe in a resurrected savior like who would have ever thought someone could resurrect from the dead it just sounds like nonsense and so the idea of shaming people away from their faith in jesus into something else or if anything to kind of lessen their potency as a community of people that this is the type of stuff that they were facing this might come in the largest society where say for example you own a business and someone comes to you says i'm not going to purchase from your company anymore because you follow you know, a, a dead and resurrected Jesus. That's, that's ridiculous. We're not going to serve you anymore. We're not going to be serviced by you anymore. And so now you're forced to ask this question. Maybe if I cave, maybe if I do not follow Jesus, maybe if I just kind of like lighten up a little bit in terms of my proclamation of confidence in this Jesus, maybe I might get the business back. Maybe I might be able to be less of an offense to those people around me. And this is what Peter's trying to say is don't do that. Don't lessen your, your potency of your affinity with Jesus. Don't walk away from the faith. Learn that even in the midst of suffering or social pressures or forms of alienation, that Jesus is with you. And there's a punchline in the midst of this, which we'll get to in just a moment as we finish this up. What Peter wants to do is he wants to liken all these bad experiences uh, to what he uses throughout as common language of the book, uh, like a fire. Let me read you a couple passages and we'll move on to the next point. Uh, so if you want, you can write this down or why don't you better yet open up your Bible and just take a look at this. First Peter chapter one, verses six through seven. Listen to what he says. He says, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved about by various trials, various trials. So his whole point, his exhortation is rejoice even in the midst of this, though right now you're going through this type of stuff. The particular Greek word that he uses there is the word parismos. Um, it's the word that oftentimes even gets utilized in the New Testament to describe temptation. It's the word that's used to describe Jesus as he was in the wilderness. When Satan came to him, he 
Parismo him, right? He tempted him. What was he attempting to tempt Jesus to do? To tempt Jesus away from his mandate to following God, to do salvation, if you would, right? His work, his assignment in a way that's more fit with who he thinks is better equipped for himself. Uh, the idea behind this is it's a temptation to, to lure away. That's what temptation does, by the way, is it lures us away from our convictions, our love, our commitment to Jesus to do things in a different manner. And this is what he wants for us to be aware of. Verse 7, he goes on to say, So that the tested genuineness of your faith might be more precious than gold, even though it perishes through, though it's tested by fire. That's the phrase that he uses, tested by fire. So he's going to describe hardships, trials, suffering as like a fire. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like going through something where the heat's been turned up? You feel like your life is being burned? This is the analogy. This is the metaphor that he uses. He goes on to finish up. He says that even though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So his point is that, look, yes, though you may be going through a tough moment. Yes, it may feel extremely and extraordinarily uncomfortable. That's what fire is. That's what fire does. But at the end of the day, his whole point is hold on. Stand still, stand firm, because at the end of all of this is a hope of glory. That's going to be revealed in Jesus. Uh, skip forward to First Peter chapter 4. We'll read one more and go on. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. He goes on to say, in light of this theme of suffering, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever gone through some form of suffering or been diagnosed with some form of disease or known somebody that has or found yourself in a place where you did not get the job that you hoped for? You didn't pass the test that you thought you were going to pass. And in that moment, there's this existential crisis where you're like, why is this happening to me? This is shocking, right? Why me? And it's exactly what Peter's saying. He's like, beloved, don't be surprised. This stuff happens. It comes. We live in a world that's broken. And that brokenness at points throughout your life will come crumbling in upon you. But his whole point is that even though this may feel like a fiery trial that's testing you, he goes on to say, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Jesus, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, he goes on to say, if you are insulted. Again, this is one of the reasons why we believe that the type of suffering he's talking about is not just going through a really rough time, meaning like a diagnosis of some form of incurable disease or something cataclysmic like that, though those are horrible in and of themselves. What it seems to be, most scholars agree that Peter's writing about, are to those that are in this midst of social pressure to conform to the larger culture. <laughs> I don't need to remind you that this is where we're at right now, by the way. If you are a follower of Jesus... You've discovered that there are voices, there are pressures, there are forms of conformity that are trying to force you, not by way of holding a gun against your head, but by way of shaming you, 
by causing you to feel if you don't do this way, you're going to lose your job. If you don't do this way, you're not going to no longer be part of the friend group. If you don't do this way, act this way or live according to this way. I mean, I just recently just read an article with Matthew McConaughey, right? Matthew McConaughey, great actor in the middle of Hollywood, goes on a podcast that does not conform to the larger sociological narrative. And now he's kind of like this crazy nut job. It doesn't, look, popular opinion, if that's what you live for, it will change just like that. As long as you are within the crosshairs or walking in the right narrative and the cultural mindset or frame of mind, then you're okay. The moment you break rank with that and go into something different, you will then become an enemy. I mean, this is not about Matthew McConaughey. It's just simply about the point of the matter that we can be in a culture that widely, broadly accepts you the moment you go out of step with that. You're not hated. And that's exactly what Peter's identifying. Is that, look, this is a trial. You're going through this type of stuff. Listen to verse 15. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify the name of God. Okay, so that's the bigger theme of suffering. Let's jump on to the next one. Like I said, we're just flying by. This is our second pass over some of these things. Let's go on to the next one. Holiness, another big topic, a big subject item that he addresses throughout this book. And we'll get more into this as we get into the nuts and bolts and the, the nettles of the text in the weeks to come. Salvation, or sorry, holiness is another big one. Uh, the Greek word that he uses here is the word hagios. Um, this is a large theme that Peter stresses. Uh, this uh, is related to the adjective um, of being holy or sanctified, or another word is set apart. Um, I'll never forget a message that I heard years and years ago uh, by a guy named Dr. Edwin Orr. And he describes um, this dish that he had uh, taken out of his cupboard and then gave it over to his cat, right? His cat. So every time his cat drank out of the dish, that was like that dish became sanctified, set apart for the cat. Um, when he needed a new dish, he did not go to the cat's dish and begin to use the cat's dish because that dish is holy devoted to the cat. It belongs to this cat, right? Um, that's a silly analogy that's helped me think about this idea of holiness. So the big question is, what does it mean to be holy unto God? That's what he's going to wrestle with. What does it mean to be devoted, to live your life as though it is devoted to God? He begins to develop this, and throughout his writing, this is basically the source that he's going to go to for moral codes, <clears throat> Moral codes. And in other words, the bigger idea is how should a Christian act in culture, in society, with regard to loving God and then loving neighbor? It's a really important question, by the way. It's a question I, I would even argue is right now is kind of front and center in our culture. Not necessarily how to love God, but more so how to interact with neighbor. I think it's part of the reason why there's been such vitriolic response towards each other, even towards family members, and God forbid, even within a church, vitriolic responses because we have lost sight of the moral code that Jesus calls us to because we've lost sight of what it actually means to be holy people. And so I would suggest that as we begin to look at this book, to pay attention to this theme of holiness, listen to how this plays out um, even throughout the book of Peter. First Peter chapter one, verse 14 to 16. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Just pause real quick and think about this again, meditate, consider our culture literally tells us 
be conformed to the desires of your heart. Whatever you're feeling in that moment, whatever that emotion is, whatever that desire is, whatever that drive is, that is what defines you. Give yourself to it. That is the most authentic you that exists. And Peter's actually giving input that's directly in contradiction to that. He says, don't live according to those desires, those impulses, because you're far more than that. This is why this is important, guys. You as a human being, you have desires and impulses. And you as a human being are far more valuable than just what those desires and impulses say about you. Do you realize that that is actually far more humanizing of a narrative than the one that's broad and central in our culture today? It's far more humanizing. And I would even add, it's far more longer lasting. And when you live according to that, okay, this is what scriptures is teaching us, to not live according to those, not let those dictate or govern or be the thing that drives you. There should be another engine that drives you. And here's what he's going to go on to say. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he has called you, is holy. God is holy. So you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So he makes this appeal to this ancient storyline of the Bible, draws from it and says, look, just as God is holy, so God bestows gifts himself, his holiness upon you. You belong to God. So what should govern our conduct? Well, again, if you follow the logic, God, who's the captain of my ship? If you live in the culture, the culture will say you are. You determine all of this. Your authenticity, your self-authentication, your experience in life is totally dependent upon how you react to this series of emotions inside you and how you respond to them and how you throw off any form of oppressive, suppressive, destructive elements and live according to your authentic self. And yet, what Scripture is actually saying is the exact opposite. It says, no, 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 your identity is far more valuable, and it's far more durable, and it's far more rooted in the narrative of a God who loves you. What that means, beloved, you're not alone in this world. You've never been alone in this world. You will never be alone in this world. You are deeply deeply loved by a God that has given himself to you, that has proven his love to you in that even in your darkest, most abominable self, he has demonstrated his love to you. This is awesome. And this is what Peter's going to begin to build upon and riff off of with regard to the idea of how are we supposed to live? Now, again, we'll get into this in the text. Uh, some would object and say, well, aren't Christian morals and ethics like, oppressive? And I would argue that they have been abused as oppressive. Yes, Christians, uh, the moment Christians have this bad relationship with power. And throughout history, when Christians have been given power or taken power, they have this ability to use power, just like everybody else, in an abusive manner. To oppress and to create taboos and create destruction and oppression upon other people. And I would argue that is the exact opposite of what Jesus ever intended. And the best path forward for the church, Christians, is to acknowledge that sin. That's what it is. It's a sin. It's gross sin. It's gross abuse of sin. To acknowledge it, repent from it, and to find a new way forward. But here's what I would argue. 
I was talking to a friend about this the other day, that there's a tendency to be like, ah, Christian taboos, Christian moral codes. This is so oppressive. And, I, and my, my point that I made was that, look, the fact of the matter is our culture has moral codes. You know that, right? And they're not benign when it comes to their moral codes. You know what I'm talking about, right? All you got to do is watch any news source at all right now in our culture and know that the moral codes that are basically put front and center, that if you line with those, you're all good. If you break rank with those, if you have a nuance of a perspective of those, you will now become an immoral, horrible human being that needs to be taken to task or canceled. Is that, is that not oppressive? Just asking. It's totally oppressive. But the gospel invites us into a different way, a different code of conduct. That its most simplest core is loving God, vertical, and loving others, this horizontal. Are there nuances to be played out? Absolutely. Are there variances of ways to consider and configure that in our culture and our life? Absolutely. But the very core of it, the kernel of it, is loving God. Loving neighbor. If you want to get even further down to that, it's love. It's love. It's just love. The more we learn to love, the more we become like Jesus, the more we become set apart, holy, the more the church is able to shine brightly who God is and what God's like. All right, one more and we're almost done here. Uh, read, uh, turn real quick to First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. One more in this topic of holiness, and then we'll move on and we'll be done. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <clears throat> he goes on to say, verse 10, Once you were not a people... Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Just pause and meditate upon that goodness right there. Once you didn't belong. Have you ever felt the sting of not belonging? All right, for me, when I think of that narrative, it takes me back to like sixth grade, fifth grade, right? Dodgeball, like, let's take that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy. And here's I'm left by myself. I was that kid. All right, that stings, at least for that moment. All right, until you get older, you're like, that's stupid. Why did I even allow that to get me? But the point of the matter is, those types of traumas, maybe I do need counseling, but the point of the matter is, let's keep going on. What does it feel like to be alienated? And this is what Peter's saying, is that you were once alienated. You were once afar off. You were once not part of the family. You were once not invited to the table, or once not at the table. Now, all of that has been shifted. Tables have been turned. And you are welcomed. You've been shown kindness and grace. Lastly, let's take a look at the theme of salvation. Number one, we looked at the subject of suffering. Number two, the big theme of holiness. Number three, the subject of salvation. Here's what he goes on to say in terms of this final theme is this idea of salvation. Um, this theme is actually connected to two larger. If you want to write these words down, you'll sound at least really smart. Next time you go to a little party, everybody's social distance, you got your mask on, you can throw out these words and people will think, wow, you're really smart. Uh, the idea of Christology and eschatology. Christology means the study, the subject matter of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The idea of salvation is linked to Christology. It's also linked to what we would call eschatology. Now, some of you, uh, 
you bristle when you hear that word eschatology because it reminds you of your crazy, weird uncle that shows up at Thanksgiving and all he wants to do is talk about the end times and the rapture. That guy, that guy, he's completely messed up this word eschatology for you. The word eschatology simply means end times. The, the study, the idea of understanding how the world will come to a conclusion, how all things will one day come to its, its final ending in which Jesus is at the center of this, all of these would be words that we would put into the category of salvation. So Peter opens this book with three out of the four occurrences of this word salvation actually appearing in the first chapter. So this is how important. So immediately, right at the gate, when we begin to look at the book itself, chapter one, next week, uh, we're going to be looking at the subject of salvation. Listen how he plays this out. Um, salvation begins... At new birth. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse uh, 3, it says this. Um, it begins at new birth. I'm not going to read it. You can just go ahead and write down and then I'll just make reference to it. Secondly, we see that salvation is actually this daily lived reality. Meaning the conduct that we have towards God. How and the reason why we live the way that we do. We act the way that we do. We think the way that we do. We deny the things that we do. We embrace the things that we do. All of this is, according to Peter, linked to the fact that something happened. We're new people. Just that phrase, new birth. What does that, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be born again? Have you ever in life just looked at yourself and thought, things could not get more worse than they are? I can't get more worse as a human being than I am. And one of the most contrasting ways in which we begin to identify that is the more close you are to people... Let's say a marriage or a relationship or a roommate experience or a mom and dad crisis where all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, I am, I'm a horrible human being. The way that I talk, the way that I treat, the way that I condescend other people, I am so in desperate need of newness, of an upgrade. That's what new birth is. It's an upgrade. It's a major overhaul upgrade. And Jesus says, all of us, left to ourselves, apart from this new birth, are just part of this downgrade, this constant destruction and brokenness that's part of our culture and society. And what salvation is, is Jesus stepping into your life and taking you from a status of brokenness and destruction and making you brand new, what he would describe as new birth. But that salvation plays out not only in the past, in terms of the past tense, but also in the present, meaning who you are today, how you're acting today, how you're living today, how you think about your neighbor today, how you either embrace or love or shun or condemn or cancel other people. All of that plays out based upon whether or not you've experienced salvation or not. And, and it will be shaped by that salvation. Jesus in your life, remaking you, shaping you. But then ultimately it culminates in the future. This is where we get the eschatology idea. The future. What does the future look like? Well, according to Peter, as well as all of the other New Testament writers, is the future looks like something brand new when Jesus comes again. So the idea of salvation, if you want to think of it this way, um, this concept of past, present, and future. That's what salvation is. Salvation is not just something that happens one day in the future where you now say the magic words, the magic combinations of words. In a lot of ways, that's kind of how Christianity has kind of been reduced to, 
is that, you know, heaven, salvation, going to heaven, whatever, when you die, has in a lot of ways been caricatured in modern culture as if you say the right magic phrases right now, then you'll go to heaven when you die. You'll be given the golden ticket, and one day when you go to heaven, you'll get salvation. That is not biblical, by the way. That's a caricature. That's a horrible cartoon drawing of this elaborate, in living color portrait of what salvation is. Salvation, according to Peter, as well as the rest of the New Testament writers, is something that happens that's deeply linked to the person of Jesus that is past, present, and future. Let me read a couple passages and I'm done. Uh, to link all of this together. Listen to how he describes this. First um, Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully. Verse 11, he says, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent to them from heaven, things that even the angels desire to look into. Then verse 13 is where it kind of all comes together. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch in that little passage that we just read the past, present, and future elements of what salvation is? The past meaning... All of the, that you have experienced are rooted in the sufferings of Jesus, him dying, him rising again from the dead. And then he goes on to say, therefore, that's why we prepare our minds. That's why we live. He uses the phrase sober minded, meaning we're not, we're not, we're not trying to numb our minds to the pain and the hurt and the sorrow and the cries of people around us. That's not love, by the way. Love can be both, uh, um, Let's put it this way. Love is an action. And to numb our minds to the cries of other people is to not be in connection, to not be sober-minded. And what he's saying is that part of the salvation looks like it's playing out in the present. You know, when you forgive people, when you overcome a temptation of sin, when you find yourself victories, in, in moments of victory, uh, in which... All you can do is attribute back to God's hand in your life. All of that is Jesus working through your life, his salvation, his healing, his redemption. And then he describes it as having a present or a future tense as well. He says, all of this stuff will be brought upon you. This grace will unfold at the revelation of Jesus. Now, has Jesus come again? No, not to any of our knowledge, right? Um, So when is this? So again, this was written 2,000 years ago. Hasn't happened yet, which means at some point it will still yet happen, which means we have this hope that we anchor ourselves into. So someone had described this way. Salvation involves not only uh, being free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and then ultimately the presence of sin. The penalty, meaning past tense, the power, meaning the present tense, Experiences that we find ourselves in the midst of, and then the future tense in terms of the presence, the very presence of sin. This is the hope that Peter brings to his audience. And 
And at the end of the day, he wants us to realize that all of these themes of suffering, holiness, and salvation, even though he dovetails all of these things so nicely and neatly into the Old Testament narrative, he basically brings all of these things and he says all of this is linked to the person of Jesus, who himself suffered, who himself, even in the midst of suffering, was wholly devoted to God, meaning he was holy. And even in himself, experienced the life of God, raising him up from the dead, and then giving that life that he was given by God to others to enjoy, to experience, to encounter victory. If you want to put it this way, at the end of the day, this entire book is all about Jesus. It's one of the reasons why we say as a community of people here on the Central Coast, our lives, what we do, how we gather, how we meet online in Zoom meetings and prayer times and church gatherings, whatever it is that we do, everything is ultimately about Jesus. Because as Jesus is central, he reshapes us, remakes us into new people that then begin to not only love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and might, but also love our neighbor. And when that happens, the church, rather than being this agent of abuse, of power, becomes this agent of goodness. That's the type of people we want to be. 